I'm pretty good at ignoring things, intentionally ignoring. You know, you know how you get all this information that just comes at you as a constant barrage? Um, it's coming in electronically. It comes in, in uh, even at your door. And um, I'm pretty good at intentionally ignoring all of that. You know that, um, that very advanced paper that comes to your door if you live in town here and it's like all wrapped up in elastics and it's filled with like a hundred flyers. Everybody know what I'm talking about here? Like I don't even read that thing. I take the whole thing part and parcel. I just walk it to my father-in-law, just give it to him and it's all his business. I don't even worry about it at all. I just ignore all of that. Junk mail that comes into your inbox, uh, your email inbox, just ignore, ignore, just make sure that uh, never gets read. Um, I'm very good at, at ignoring home decorating shows. Uh, I have a lot of practice at ignoring those because they're like on all the time at our house. Um, so I ignore those. I ignore baseball. So boring, isn't it? How many people agree with that? Like, I think the playoffs are on right now, but seriously, so boring. I can ignore all of that. Um, election coverage. Um, I mean, I, I know there's some things that we need to know, and that's important, but I can ignore most of the election co- coverage because it's, you know, so much talking, so little substance. How many people are with me? You know, so I can ignore like all of that. But once in a while, once in a while, something crosses my path and demands not only my attention, but a response. Okay? Once in a while, something crosses my path that demands not just my attention, but also a response. Now, I want you to hang on to that thought for a second, because we are continuing along in our study of the book of Acts and uh, we have been, this is our sixth message, and we've been working through chapters one and two. And the whole setup for what we're saying today, if you've missed any of these messages, they're available online. But the whole setup for today is in what we've already seen in chapter one and chapter uh, two. And the Apostle Peter has just completed preaching a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And, and we've been tracking with this seven week period of time from the death burial and resurrection of Christ. It took seven weeks until we get to the day of Pentecost and uh, some very exciting things, some impactful things that happened just 10 days prior to the moment that we're studying here on the day of Pentecost. 10 days prior, Jesus ascended to the Father and he gave this promise as he was ascending. He said, I'm going to send you uh, the Holy Spirit. Just wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Took 10 days for that to happen, 10 days of waiting. And when the Holy Spirit filled them, He came as a mighty rushing wind. There was, as it were, uh, tongues of fire that fell on top of them. And then they started proclaiming the good news about Christ in the languages of all the people that were living in Jerusalem at the time. It was a miraculous proclamation of the word. And so it was, you can imagine, if all these people were in Jerusalem from all over the world, they were in for the day of Pentecost for the festival, they're hearing Galileans speak the gospel in in their own language. You can imagine how that's, that, that's attention-grabbing, don't you think? That's attention-grabbing. It caught their attention. So all these people started to gather, and that's where Peter preached his message. They were drawn to these 120 Christians, that's all there were at the time, who were proclaiming the gospel. And what happened that day, all the events of that day, and what these uh, 120 were saying was impossible, impossible for the crowds to ignore And they had asked earlier, they had asked the apostles in in verse 12 of chapter 2, what does this mean when they started to see all the signs and they heard the gospel? What does this mean? And so Peter preached his message in response to that question. And when it was done, they asked a second question, what shall we do? What shall we do? And that's what we're going to see today. How are we to respond to what we've seen and heard? 
Because it got their attention and it demanded a response. And the message and the ministry of Jesus Christ always, always demands a response. And as we see the people respond to Peter's message, you and I are going to be called to respond here today. One of two ways we're going to be called to respond. Because Jesus should not and really cannot be ignored. We may ignore a lot of things in our life, but Jesus cannot and should not be ignored. Amen? All right, so let me read the uh, text that we're going to be looking at here. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 37, just five verses today, 37 through 41. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll get after it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we are uh, grateful to be here today and and to be in the hearing of your word. And we know that, uh, Father, your word is a uh, lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray, God, that you would uh, do that work here again today. Father, each one of us is on our own journey. And Father, apart from you, there's no light there. It's just darkness. And I pray, God, that you would push past the darkness in our minds and in our hearts the darkness of our own experiences, Father, and I pray that you would cut through all of that with the light of Jesus Christ and that we would see clearly today from your word how we ought to respond. Father, this is a work that only you can do in us. We ask for your Holy Spirit to move in such a way that the unexplainable happens in this room today. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You with me? You agree with that? All right, the gospel compels me to respond to Jesus. We're going to see the response that we should have here. Uh, First of all, the gospel compels me to respond to Jesus from the heart. Now, I hope you have, right out of the gate here, I hope you have a grasp on the truth that religious ritual, religious ritual and right living are not the path to God. Okay, let me say that again. Religious ritual and right living are not the path to God. To God. Outward efforts to earn a standing before God net zero results. We could go back to King David in the Old Testament. We think about David and his approach to God. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart, but he failed so miserably. King David was responsible for conspiracy to commit murder, that he was actually complicit in the murder of a man. He wanted to kill that man because he had slept with his wife and she was pregnant and he was going to be found out. This is the king of Israel responsible for all of this. And when Nathan the prophet brought it to him and made sure that he knew that God was aware of his sin, David repented. He went before God. He said this, this is Psalm 51. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. 
Now, the question I have, there's more to come here, but the question that I have about this is David's actually saying to God that the prescribed ways that God had given Israel to actually approach him and to deal with sin, the very sacrificial system that God had set up, David is now saying that my sins cannot be atoned for in that way. That the religious rites that God himself had prescribed were not enough. And, and, and David had to think about how he was actually going to approach God. He's got this desperate plea before God to, to improve, to fix, to remedy his sin situation. But the God-prescribed rituals and ceremonies were not enough to make up for his sin. Praying a prayer, bringing a sacrifice, giving an offering of money, pledging yourself to serve God the rest of your life, holy living, won't cut it. But that's the program that most people are actually on. I committed these sins. I need to do some good things to make up for that. And David's saying even the God-prescribed means, the way the whole temple was set up for Israel, it's not enough. So David says this next. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, the real things that get you through to him, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, that is a humble, repentant, sorrowful heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is the thing that God wants. God wants our heart before anything else. God doesn't want your religious observance apart from your heart being in it. Now back to our passage, that was an illustration to kind of set up the importance of the heart in all of this. But back to our passage, verse 37 starts then. Now when they heard this, when the crowd that had gathered because of the miraculous signs that had been done... When, when they heard this sermon that Peter had just preached, the Bible tells us they were cut to the heart. In other words, their conscience, their conscience was pierced by the preaching of the word of God. One commentator, in fact, I, I was reading, um, cited Homer, one the great um, uh, Greek author. Homer used the same rare expression to refer to this, this expression, cut to the heart, to refer to horses stomping their hooves. I don't know anything about horses. Anybody here know anything about horses? I don't know really much about horses, but here's, here's what I found out. Horses are, when they're stomping their hooves, they're very exercised about something. Usually they're stomping their hooves and they're snorting and their heads are going back and forth and they're communicating to whoever cares that they're very exercised about something that's going on. That's the expression cut to the heart. They're stomping their hooves. And so we could say when they heard this, when the crowd heard this sermon that Peter was preaching, they were stomping their hooves. They were snorting and, 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 and throwing their heads from side to side. This got their attention. Their heart was responding. And, and the heart, we know, is the seat of our emotions. It refers to the essential core, at least in part of who we are, part of our soul. And we know this, that if a person is really into something, if they believe it, if they pursue it, then we say, you know, her heart's really in that. His heart really comes out in that song. You can, you can see how much they're giving their heart to this thing. 
And when you give your heart to something, there's nothing, there's nothing you wouldn't do to have it, to keep it, to cherish it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ compels that very kind of response from those who truly get it, a heart response. But it's not enough that we just respond from the heart. The gospel also compels me, notice this secondly, to respond to Jesus as an act of the will. Whether Peter ended his sermon here or he was interrupted, we don't know for sure. We don't have enough details from Luke who authored this, but it's as though the people said, we've heard enough. Okay, you've presented it. We get it. We heard it. We understand it. We've heard enough. And then the text tells us they asked the apostles, verse 37 continues, what shall we do? That's the big question. What shall we do? Remember, Peter's preaching this. And the text told us earlier that the 11 apostles who had also all witnessed the resurrection were standing with him as he preaches. It's as if all 12 of them are preaching it. Peter's just doing it on their behalf. So the people are right there in the crowd. They're listening to this and they're appealing. They're all calling out at the same time. What shall we do? What shall we do of all the apostles? How do you want us to respond? Now, what's really interesting is nothing is being coerced here. It's not a manipulative kind of pulling them in. Every person standing there could simply have heard Peter out and then walked away and gone on with their lives and it would have been no harm, no foul. In order to ask the question, each one would have had to have wrestled with this, surrendered, chosen of their own volition to respond to the message by asking the question, what shall we do? We established earlier in the series that the book of Acts actually moves us into a greater understanding that our faith is a very personal thing. That it's a one-on-one decision that each one of us has to make before Jesus Christ. All of us wrestling with whether or not we're going to be in relationship with the Lord. We don't automatically become a believer if we're born into a so-called Christian home. We're not automatically Christians by virtue of being born in the Christian West or in a Christian country, if, if Canada is even that. No one is inheriting anything here. You're not a Christian by default. No one is ever saved against their will. No one can make this decision for you. You are not saved by being part of a community of faith. It's awesome to be part of the community of faith. And we're going to see in the next message how important community and being together and being the church is. But just hanging around with Christians, just coming to worship services, just being part of this, not enough. But when I, as an act of the will, say that I believe the message and surrender myself to Jesus Christ, I am saying to God the very same thing that Jesus said to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. Mary's praying. The disciples were there. And uh, this is an agonizing moment for him. Because in the garden, the full weight of the sins of humanity are being put on him. Your sins were being put on him. My sins were being put on him. And he began to feel the great weight of the burden of carrying that. And he was praying. And he was asking the Father, if it's possible, could this cup pass? Could, could there be another way? And then he surrendered. And Jesus Christ said to the Father, not my will. But yours be done. 
And the reality is for every one of us, as we think about this personal faith and having to make this decision, every one of us having to make this decision, the reality is it comes down to that statement. If Jesus Christ is going to be your Lord and Savior, you're going to become a Christian, then in essence what you're saying to God is, not my will, not my way of doing it. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm now going to live your way. It's entirely about your will for my life. Because I see now how the way that I've been living is deficient and lacks hope. And that the gospel is life. And I want to give myself entirely to that so I will receive it. Now, as I was thinking about this whole matter of the will and this decision that's being made, it it brought to mind this quote from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said this, There are two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, All right then, have it your way. Only two kinds of people in the world. And those in the room right now who are followers of Jesus Christ, you've surrendered that and you said, God, you're well, then then you're on that side of the equation. But everyone else in the room who has not yet surrendered their will to God is on the other side of it. And God is allowing you to have your will. And there is no in between these two things. There's no middle position. Either your life is surrendered to Christ or it is not. And again, your way is not going to cut it. And by the end of this message, Peter's going to level this warning at, the, at, at his listeners, and it comes to us as well. That there is no joy, there is no hope, there is no satisfaction, there is no blessing apart from the surrendering of our will to him, because the world is not offering us much at all. So the gospel compels me, you see this now, the gospel compels me to respond to Jesus first from the heart, secondly, as an act of the will, and then see this, we're going to spend a lot of time right here, after thinking it through. So far from being, because we've set this up already, but far from being an emotionally driven, anti-intellectual decision or something that's coerced, the receiving of Jesus Christ is actually reasonable and it's based on data that can be analyzed and considered. It's, it's in fact remarkable to see, and I've been walking with Jesus for decades now, and, and to just to see all the different ways that people come to faith in Christ. And I know you've had this experience. Many of you have had different ways that you've come to Christ. For some of you, it was like there was a major crisis in my life, and I heard the gospel, and at the moment, it was a very emotional thing. And then there are others who I know, I have friends, it wasn't emotional at all. They were at a point in their life where they were just interested in religious things. They picked up a Bible. They started reading it. Nobody was involved in the process. They read the Bible and very rationally came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Lord, their Lord and Savior. And just from a very rational, I'm just convinced of these truths, came to Christ. Isn't that true? You know people who have come to Christ both ways. And so we have this in front of us, God working in very different ways. And for some people, it's a very intellectual thing. Peter, in fact, is just, it has just worked through in the sermon the, the proofs and arguments for the resurrection. The number one thing that the people needed to be convinced of was that this man that they knew about named Jesus, who was from Nazareth, who had spent three and a half years proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God, they all knew in Jerusalem that seven weeks prior he had been crucified. 
But there were hundreds and hundreds of people who had seen him alive. And the, and the 12 apostles who were standing with Peter as he preached this message, they had all seen him alive. They were the official witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the number one thing that the people needed to be convinced of was that Jesus Christ, that man who had taught for three and a half years, that itinerant rabbi, that he wasn't just that, that he was actually the Messiah and he had been raised from the dead. And that's what Peter did in this message. He was building a case from what they had experienced and what they had seen and what the witnesses were saying and what the Old Testament prophets had said about all of this. And so in answer to their question, he says this in verse 38, and we're going to, this verse is packed. So we're going to spend some time here. We're going to break down every phrase in here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First and, and, and most importantly in this verse, the very first word is so important, repent. And that's really the key to the whole thing here. To, rep- to repent is, and we've defined it this way many times, it's to agree with God and to turn from your way of doing it to his. It's a basic definition of repentance. To agree with God and to turn from your way of doing it to his. One commentator helped us break it down this way and um, here's five kind of elements to repentance. These are going to be up on the screen. Repentance is, first of all, regret for sin. And this is at a more cognitive level, that that I'm really, I've thought it through, and you know, I really regret how my sin has hurt you. I regret how my sin has separated me from God. I regret how my sin has hurt me over the years. It's a cognitive understanding that I should be regretful for my sin Repentance is also sorrow for sin. And this is where it touches on the emotion. Like I'm really broken about the fact that my sin has separated me from God. Thirdly, it's confession of sin. That that having understood it and expressed it emotively, now I'm actually going to say it out loud. I confess that I'm a sinner and that my sin has separated me from the Lord. And then fourth, there's an intent to not live that way anymore. And again, back to our easy definition of repentance, to agree with God and turn from my way to his. This is the the agreeing, uh, this is the the, uh, turning part. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I've been living my way long enough and it's not working. And then fifth, belief in and acceptance of Christ. And this is the agreement with God part, that I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see from that how it all fits rationally and how the heart and will must nevertheless still be engaged. So that's repent. Now here's, here's the next part, repent and be baptized. Okay, be baptized. The critical imperative is repentance. It's like the umbrella command, and then everything else in this verse comes under that idea of repentance, including this matter of being baptized. So baptism is, and this is a key phrase, an outward expression of an inward commitment. It's an outward expression of an inward commitment. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. But what needs to be addressed here first is how important, because we just like to read the Bible and just believe it, but how important is the order of things, repent and be baptized? Because if that order is important, then then that challenges us in a a certain number of ways. If If my decision to follow Christ is an act of my will, as we saw, then the order is very important. Further, if the primary command is, is repent, then it must occupy the first position, as it does. And so it's 
I decide of my own volition to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and therefore I decide to be baptized in obedience to him. That order is important. Now, that precludes anyone there who is baptized without first making the decision to be baptized. I'm, uh, I'm grateful this Thanksgiving weekend to have some family here uh, from Montreal, cousins and uncle, and uh, grateful to have them here. We all uh, grew up in uh, Montreal North uh, together, all within a few blocks of one another. We were all part of uh, St. Ignatius Parish in Montreal North. I was born in June 64, and three months later, um, my parents, being good Anglicans, goodish Anglicans, I guess I could say, goodish Anglicans, um, they uh, took me uh, to be uh, christened, baptized, sprinkled at uh, three months of age in September of that year. Now, I don't, um, I don't recall repenting prior to being baptized at three months old. I don't recall repenting. I don't even recall being really aware of my sin at three months old, although I know I was a sinner. Um, I don't recall you asking me if I wanted to be baptized at three months of age. Did you ask me? You didn't even ask me. <laughs> so, so all that to say, I don't remember making a conscious decision to be baptized at three months of age. I don't remember it being an act of of my will to be baptized. Now listen, I'm grateful to, be a, to, to, to have been given the legacy of that and appreciate mom and dad's at least some sense of God, even though we would say at the time we were not believers, we would just say we had a sense of God at that time. But that was not in any way effective in saving me. Infant baptism never is effective at saving anyone. Now, in my teen years, I was exposed to a much clearer presentation of the gospel in a way that was unencumbered by rites and rituals. It was right from the word of God, and I repented and was later baptized. I had thought it through, considered it carefully. It made sense. It was rational, and I believed. And again, that order for me is not based on some, and this is what happens, it's not based on some theological system that's created and then imposed on the Bible. That order is derived from a simple and plain reading of the Word of God. It is repent and then be baptized. All right, that's kind of like the first thing we had to break down there. Then notice, or the second thing, um, let's notice now, this is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this is an exclusive claim on how we enter into a relationship with God. This doesn't seem super modern. It doesn't seem to fit with the culture in which we live today. It doesn't fit within a Canadian society that is a very big on tolerance and I'm okay and you're okay and we just need to accept everyone to make a claim that the only path to God is through Jesus Christ is unpopular today. It's controversial. But please understand that it was just as controversial in the first century when Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. In fact, if you jump ahead just two chapters to chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter and John are before the Jewish council and they're being questioned because the gospel is spreading and thousands of people by this time in Jerusalem, thousands of people are believing in Jesus and being baptized. So they call them in. What are you guys doing? And at the end of, 
of their presentation, Peter and John make it so clear. There is no other name. This is Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's just Jesus. And if these moves are made, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then you will have the one thing that is necessary for you to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is you will have, according to the verse, your forgiveness of sins. It's the only thing that divides you from God. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No longer a sense that God somehow is far off and I can't reach him. That God is somehow so other that I can't have a relationship with him. But now, in fact, the Holy Spirit, and this was the gift that God gave us on the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells us so that God is right with us always. In fact, we become the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter goes on to say, that was verse 38. There was a lot in there, right? There's a lot right there. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. Okay, I'm speaking to you, the Jewish people. The promise is for you, and it's for your children. So it's not like just a revival for right now. This is a, the new way that God is working. And then he goes on to say, and for all who are far off, which is this little clue word, they would know it right away. Wow, this isn't just for the Jewish people. This is for everyone who's far off. This is for Gentiles too. How many Gentiles here today? You're all Gentiles probably, okay? Anyone who's non-Jewish, this gospel message isn't just for Israel anymore. As of this moment on, it's going out. And in in fact, this is consistent exactly what Jesus said back in chapter one, verse eight, when he gave them the commission. He said, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Take it everywhere and tell everyone because the Lord is saving those who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. No one is excluded or beyond the reach of God. The offer of salvation is available to all. And so God rationally, purposefully enacting his plan, working out his purposes for humanity, solving the problem of sin, solving the problem of our separation from God. And it all makes sense when you think about it. It was true that Peter's message here was actually much longer than we have in the book of Acts, and every preacher feels compelled to let you know that the sermon was longer than what we have here. And obviously, preachers want to tell you that for self-serving purposes. In my own study, it seems that this sermon of Peter's was probably 45 minutes long, in fact. I may have made that up. Um, But if this happened today, what you have here is a summary. Luke is just providing us a summary of the message because there's no way to record it. It's not like today. If someone was preaching this message today, it would be, as we do, it's audio recorded, it's video recorded. People might even be uh, doing Instagram stories and putting up little clips of the message, but they didn't have that back then. But the sermon was evidently longer than what we have here because Luke actually writes in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. And that exhortation, we're not done here yet, that exhortation was the warning, and this is why it all makes sense. This is why we have to think it through. It was a warning to save yourselves from this crooked generation. The world isn't offering you anything. It's not giving you this hope. You're not going to have the joy we're talking about. 
The crooked generation, it's perverse, it's broken, it's warped. The culture around us is corrupted. It's heading toward a crash. There's not a single human being or philosophy of life that's going to stop that. The first century people listening to to Peter here, they, they were under Roman occupation. They had fellow Jews who were collaborating with the Romans. The religious institutions that they counted on to bring them close to God were so badly corrupted that God called them out. And I don't think that's much different than today. A government that's self-serving, religious institutions that are corrupt. We live in a crooked generation. And the question you have to answer is, who else is going to save you from this crooked generation? This perverse generation that we live in. There's no hope offered by this world that gets you beyond death. You might be able to cobble together like we saw last week, enough hope to get you day by day and week by week and maybe to the day of your death, but you can't, you can't find anything that's going to get you beyond death. Think it through. Nothing this world offers satisfies for any length of time. The building of career, the amassing of wealth, the fleeting nature of life itself, the fickleness of friends, the despair we feel at the troubles that this world is experiencing economically and environmentally and politically. Think about the fragility of of family, of personal health, of marriage. Everything is crooked and perverse and broken and warped. And Christ alone is our hope for an abundant life here and for eternal life hereafter. And what God wants us to do is not just respond to Him emotionally or to simply surrender to His will, but to think it through and to agree with Him about all of these things. Finally, this. The gospel compels me to respond to Jesus with a public declaration of my faith. I said earlier that our faith is personal. It has to be worked out one-on-one with God. Our faith in Jesus Christ is personal, but it is not meant to be private. It is not meant to be private. We've already established that rites and rituals do not save, and yet here we have these new converts, these 3,000 who agree, who are repenting, They're agreeing with God and turning. And now they're being told to perform a ritual. Be baptized. Now, it isn't that the rites and rituals are unimportant or unessential, but only that they must be from the heart and must be done as an act of the will. Again, to come back to that phrase I shared with you earlier, they are an outward sign of an inward commitment. The inward commitment must happen first. And so, verse 41, those who received his word... That's the inward commitment. Those who received his word were baptized, the outward sign. And, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the church went from a, this is church growth. It went from 120 to 3,000 people one day, became a mega church instantly. Now, as a pastor, I immediately have a question and it's a logistics question, right? I start to think through what's it going to take to baptize 3,000 people today? I know what it's like around here when when we have like six people being baptized 
and three in each service on any given Sunday. And I know that we have to have a meeting about that and we have to check with all the people who are going to do all the things to make it happen. That somehow the tank needs to appear here and water needs to get into the tank. And then there's pipe and drape that's set up and there's people that have to be interviewed and we have to get out the towels and the t-shirts. We have to organize the whole thing for like six people. Can you imagine how long the meeting would have to be to baptize 3,000 people. And I'm, I'm, if I went to my staff on Tuesday and said, you know, we're baptizing 3,000 people next Sunday, they would go, we do not have time to organize that. We can't get enough T-shirts in time. That's what they say. And yet here they are in Jerusalem, 3,000 people have just repented and they need to be baptized. And this isn't just sprinkling. Most of us here understand that we practice baptism by immersion and, and uh, might be asked the question, why, in fact, don't we sprinkle or pour? Those are two other modes of baptism, and largely it's because of what we see here. It would be much easier, by the way, logistically, to just sprinkle everybody because you could do that. Every, okay, everybody just get into a group here and then just get a fire hose and sprinkle everybody, right? I mean, <laughs> mass baptism all at once, all done, very easy. The challenge is that the word baptism in our Bible, leads us toward the word immersion. In fact, it is the word immersion. Let me show you the word. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and um, on the left there you have baptizo in the Greek script. We anglicize the script to baptizo so we can read it, and then that is brought into the English language as to baptize. And um, we already learned a couple weeks ago that English is a rip-off language. We steal words from every other language on the planet, and we bring them into English. It's, it's just a, a hodgepodge of words from other languages. And, and that's exactly, every time you use the word baptism, just remember, that's not an English-rooted word. That is a Greek word that we've brought into English. And the reason why it was brought into English in the translations of the Bible was because there were theological decisions that were being made about the word itself, because if you just translate the word, doing this is called transliteration. I take the word from one language to another, but if I translate it into English, the word is immerse. So that if I read this verse again, those who received his word were immersed. Those who received his word were immersed. So the biblically modeled mode of baptism, the only kind of baptism we actually see in the Bible is immersion, not sprinkling, not pouring. Those are later church traditions. So back to the logistics question. We have to immerse a lot of people today. How are we going to get that done? Well, the good news was for the city of Jerusalem and for the Jewish people, ritual baptism was a very common practice among the Jews in the first century. In fact, around the city of Jerusalem, there were various pools. And in the New Testament, you know about some of these. The Pool of Siloam, for example, and the Pool of Bethesda were two of them. And archaeologists who are doing research in Jerusalem have found these pools and kind of sketched them out of where they were in the city. In fact, we have a picture here. This is a scale model of the uh, Pool of Bethesda. And it was actually quite large um, in two different sections, um, both of them kind of trapezoidal in, in, in shape. And uh, they, they had a lot of water in them. And around the colonnade, there were steps that went down into them. And Jewish people, for various reasons, for ceremonial cleanness purposes, would go and they would self-baptize. They would walk down on the steps into the water, baptize themselves and come out. And they would be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean for whatever reason they had gone 
in for. Now, you have to understand the size of this because we're still talking about, even though there's multiple pools and how big were these things, this one in particular was 150 meters on the one side by 50 meters. So half again as large as a football field. So these are massive pools. And so it would have been quite easy for the 3,000 people who have now repented and need to be baptized and the 12 apostles who were there to just say, okay, you know what? Um, John's going to take this section of people. You guys are going to Pool Siloam and just follow him and then he'll baptize you. And, and, and Andrew's going to take this group over here and you guys are going to go to Bethesda and go to the far end of Bethesda and we're going to send another group. Thomas, you're going to go with this group. And they would have just sent them all over the city to be baptized that day in all of these ceremonial pools. So it was very possible. In fact, much easier for them to baptize 3,000 than it would be for us uh, to do that today unless we went down to Kempenfelt Bay and did it in the water there. So that's everything around mode. And why, why is mode so important? Well, baptism by immersion, it's more than just the act, but it's a picture of the gospel itself. And it shows our identification with Jesus Christ. So again, most of you have witnessed a baptism, so you understand that the person stands there, the person baptizing and the baptizee stands there in the water, and you lower them down into the water till they're completely immersed, and you bring them back up again. And I had a pastor that I worked with for a number of years, and he would always say, and these were awesome words, but he would always say this, in the midst of the baptism, he would say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. How many people have heard that before? Buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's based in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's speaking about spirit baptism, but he's using the picture of physical baptism to illustrate his point so that we would all understand that in that very public declaration of baptism to show that we've repented, that we are identifying directly with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the mode is important, but the mode is not everything. And we have genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus from the heart as an act of their wills, having understood things, who practice baptism in a different way. And we're not saying in any way that the mode that you use somehow says whether or not you're a Christian, because that would contradict things we've said earlier in this message. So the mode is not the primary thing here. It's important, but not primary. The order of this is far more critical. We practice immersion by conviction because that's what we see in the word. But more importantly, we practice what's called credo or believer's baptism because repent and be baptized is the necessary outward bodily visible declaration of a well thought out act of will from the heart. Repent and be baptized. It's not conferred by someone else, as it was for me when I was sprinkled as a baby. Not conferred by someone else, but chosen by me as an act of the will. Now that's a lot. I've laid out quite a bit. And if we just kind of bring this in for a close, I know it's not escaped some of you just seeing all these different ways that we respond to the Lord, this very public declaration of our faith being the last step in all of that. But what we see here is a heart, soul, mind, and strength response to Jesus. It's an all-in response to the Lord. And it reminds me of the way that we're supposed to love the Lord. The great commandment that Jesus told us is in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. 
in every possible way that you could love Jesus, love him in that way. And the decision to follow Jesus Christ is that kind of a decision. It's a love decision, a heart, soul, mind, and strength decision. And the gospel compels me. It's the point of this message is the gospel compels me to respond to him in this way. And so two possible responses or really two appeals that, that Peter is making to us today through the word. And the first one is, if you have not yet repented, if you've not yet become a Christian, not yet agreed with God and turned from your way to his, then I would appeal to you to repent today and become a follower of Jesus Christ. The second response that we're being asked to make is for those who have not yet been baptized. So you've got the repentance part, you've given your life to Christ, but for whatever reason, I don't know what that is, but for whatever reason, you've not yet been baptized as an act of your will by immersion as a public declaration of your faith. It could be that the time was never right or you could be delaying it for whatever reason or maybe it's family pressure. Maybe it's some tradition in your background, some theological understanding that you have that's keeping you from this. None of which... I believe are going to be great excuses when you stand before the Lord. It's a simple act of obedience toward him to be baptized. And so that's where we're going to leave the application. I want you to just bow your heads with me right now, but I want to give us some time here. Joel's playing and we're not going to sing to close today. We're just going to leave it as a time of prayer. And so bow your heads and I want you to consider carefully whether or not one of these two responses is your response. Do I need to repent? Do I need to be baptized? I'm going to give you some time to pray and to, and to consider that before the Lord right now and then I'll close our time. Father, you are good, you are kind. We're grateful that you worked out a way for us to be in relationship with you, our creator. Father, that you passed our failings and our fears, you looked past our sin, 
cover it by the blood of Christ. So we're grateful for that, Lord. And I pray right now for those in the room who have not yet made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Father, that you would be working by your Holy Spirit to convince them of the truths that they've heard today. And that they would have a strong sense in their own spirit that they ought to turn their life over to you. I pray also, Father, for those in the room who have been delaying for whatever reason the public declaration of their faith. pray that decisions are being made in this moment to change that. And Father, I pray for all the believers in the room who are already saved, already forgiven, already baptized. God, that out of a message like this, we would sense again the urgency of the gospel and we would lean in even more to see you work in extraordinary ways. God, that you indeed would blow through this church and this community in a way that would bring a spiritual awakening. Father, we read about the day of Pentecost and in some ways we're we're jealous for the response. We long to see you work in a way that is unexplainable and miraculous. So that, Father, there would be no doubt that no one here brought it about. And you alone would receive the the glory for it. So, Father, continue your good work in this people and in our church and all those who have joined us here today. Thank you for hearing this prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.